0: Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly.
1: you got to understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless.
2: so crazy about it. it's just music
3: welcome to sound opinions from chicago public radio and american public media i'm jim de the pop music critic at the chicago sun
1: times and i'm greg cutts i write about rock and roll for the chicago tribune today on the world's only rock and roll talk show jim and i are going to look at the lasting legacy of the post-punk band joy division
3: then we'll review the new albums by Cafe Tacuba and The Red Walls.
1: You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time to welcome our newest affiliate.
3: Greg, when we do this, you know, sometimes we like to play a famous band from uh, whatever area is joining us. Sometimes we like to talk to a record store. KRCC in Colorado Springs is coming on board. We're thrilled to have him. We had to talk to Adam Leach, who owns what I am told is the hippest record store in Colorado named The Leach Pit. I mean, just from that name, The Leech Pit. <laughs> Adam, welcome
2: to Sound Opinions. Uh, thank you for having me.
3: Well, we got to know before we go anywhere else, how'd you get that name?
2: Well, you know, honestly, um, it, Leech being my last name, it just sort of tagged it on there, but the idea dawned on me while I was watching Beverly Hills 90210, wow. uh, and everyone was hanging out over at the Peach Pit, and I just thought, well, that's that's great, but a Leech Pit would be even better.
3: Absolutely. And would <laughs> the Flaming Lips even played the Peach Pit on... Beverly Hills, 90210.
1: Isn't early. that great? Yeah. yeah. So the Leech Pit has been around for a few years in Colorado Springs. I take it.
2: Four years. Yeah, we Four just years. celebrated our anniversary.
1: Now you you're an independent record store. So how how does the store doing? We keep doing these stories every week, Adam, on Sound Opinions about how the record industry is in trouble. How's business at the Leech Pit? <laughs> you know, that's the
2: funny thing is that uh, it couldn't be better. We don't really concern ourselves too much with uh, what the record industry says. I have kids as young as ten years old coming in to buy Zeppelin and Pink Floyd records, and it, you know, it's a big source of pride for me to see these kids coming up and and cutting their teeth on the real deal instead of being locked into some uh, streaming crap on the internet. <laughs>
3: what uh, what what is uh, selling? What's what's your top five selling CDs this week?
2: Uh, you know, CDs. I besides local stuff, rarely sell more than just what's on hand. We're we're predominantly used. But I sold over 100 copies of local band Great Redneck Hope, um, Mm -hmm. kind of screamo metal legends around here. And it's great. The local section moves faster than anything.
1: Okay, so Great Redneck Hope is the band uh, to watch from Colorado Springs.
2: Um, Well, they uh, just are well known for just an exciting over-the-top live show, and and their discs are moving fine.
3: All right, let's hear a little bit of uh, Great Redneck Hope.
1: Adam, thank you so much for coming on Sound Opinions. We are so happy to be on at uh, KRCC in Colorado Springs, and it sounds like a great music town, judging by how uh, you're doing at the Leach Pit. Thanks, Adam. Thank you.
2: Greg,
3: These are two insane news stories on the face of it. Uh, Let's go crazy by Prince is a good introduction, but there's a serious undercurrent here about how out of control the current debate in popular music is getting about copyright controls. We've been talking endlessly about the major labels suing their own customers in an effort to stop what they call illegal downloading, what many people call file sharing. This example, though, goes right over the top. Holden Lenz has been uh, targeted as one of the major criminals currently responsible for the downfall of popular music as we know it. He's 18 months old, and he lives in rural Pennsylvania. His mom made a 29-second Home video of baby Holden dancing to Prince's Let's Go Crazy, which is barely audible in the background. Mm -hmm. You can hardly even hear it. So the dancing baby is bebopping away to Prince, right? And mom puts it up on YouTube because she wants to share it with the family. 28 people watched the video. This prompts... A legal notice from Universal Music Prince's label Threatening that they better get it off immediately Or all hell's going to rain down On the Lenz family in rural Pennsylvania Because they are violating Prince's copyright controls. Prince is way upset about YouTube that fans have been posting clips either from his movies or his videos or using his music in different contexts. He doesn't like this. He takes, you know, sincere objection to it. And apparently he's decided that uh, dancing babies are out of bounds. If there has been a better example of how insane this copyright stuff has gotten uh, lately. I-, I can't think of it, especially because after the story broke, like 100,000 people watched the clip. <laughs> it went overnight from 29 in the family to 100,000 people. So by telling people not to watch, more people watched. Bingo. <laughs> Getting exactly the... Uh, but even, even better than that is this.
1: That is music from Wasp, Jim. I never thought I'd hear or see the day when we played Wasp on Sound Opinions. The reason we're bringing it up is that the band Wasp still exists. They've been around since the 80s. They were famously the target of the Parents Music Resource Center in the nineteen eighties headed by one tipper gore in her campaign against explicit rock lyrics, i will never forget the picture of <laughs> tipper gore
3: at congress holding up the album cover by wasp whose title i cannot repeat on the air uh...
1: which featured a jigsaw blade in the, the, <laughs> the where the guys crotch should be yes yeah, so that tell you everything you need to know about wasp and its music and we thought we're never gonna have to mention this band again they've gone away Well, they still exist they're still out there touring and now on their website they are telling their fans Please do not bring any cameras into the shows this fall as it is strictly prohibited to take pictures or recordings of the performance of WASP. Security personnel at every venue will confiscate any cameras, including digital cameras and mobile phones with ability to record. Well, now, there's the twist. I mean, everybody's got a
3: mobile phone these days, and, and what's been replacing 10,000 lighters at a concert is 10,000 mobile phones
1: exactly. up in the air. You see countless fans taking pictures at Christina Aguilera shows, t- snapping pictures. Nobody seems to have a problem with this, but now we've got Wasp saying, you know, this is somehow going to harm our careers, that you're, you're taping our performance on your cell phone? Well, it's rare to have an artist of the
3: caliber of Wasp, you know, <laughs> performing all of their Crimson Idol album in its entirety. <laughs> I mean, this, is a,
1: this is a special event, Greg. Special event absolutely. this reminds me of an you know, old West saloon Jim you know check your gun at the door now they're having us check our cell phones at the door. It is absolutely ridiculous.
3: You're listening to sound opinions
1: Seeing as how this is the first television program which brought you the first appearances from everyone from the Beatles to the Buzzcocks, we like to think we bring you the most new and interesting sounds in the Northwest. They're called Joy Division and are a Manchester band except for the guitarist who comes from Salford. A very important distinction. This is called Transmission. What you're listening to there is a snippet from a new movie called Control about the band Joy Division. The director of that movie is one Anton Corbin. You probably heard that name as one of the most famous rock photographers of the last 25 years, including his pictures of the band Joy Division. But this is his directorial debut. Uh, that is an actor, Craig Parkinson, playing the role of the English music impresario Tony Wilson, and he is introducing Joy Division on their first televised appearance in the UK in 1978. We're going to discuss the legacy of the band Joy Division, Jim, because it's, it's interesting. Thirty years later, it's all, coming out all this wash. activity. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> It's ever Suddenly, Joy
3: Division is ubiquitous, certainly reaching more people than they did in their heyday. Now, this is a band that only made two recordings in its lifetime, Unknown Pleasures in 1979 and Closer in 1980, but they put out a slew of 12 Inches. 30 years after the band formed, a number of key recordings are being reissued on expanded double CDs and vinyl, rounding up all those 12 inches and everything else. In addition, the Anton Corbin film, there's a self-titled Joy Division documentary expected to be released in the coming months. Uh, I guess the revived interest started, really, Greg, with 24-hour party people in 2002, that movie about the Manchester music scene. And you hear their influences now everywhere from, uh, you know, bubbling under Brooklyn dance rock acts like Interpol and Rapture up to the mainstream with U2, Smashing Pumpkins, The Cure. Before we get too much further into uh, all of that and their influence, let's take a look at who Joy Division was. Three, five, oh, one, two,
2: five, I was there the backstage like him came around I grew up not a change But when the first time around I could see all the weakness I could pick all the faults But I could see all the pain tests Just a stick in your throat B1G one one
1: That is a song called Warsaw by a band called Warsaw. That is what Joy Division originally called itself when it got together in Manchester in 1977. Bernard Sumner on guitars, Peter Hook on bass, Stephen Morris on drums, and last but not least, Ian Curtis on vocals. Curtis was the last member of the band to join... Uh, He was invited to join the band by Bernard Sumner. Sumner liked the way Curtis looked. Uh, Didn't know if he could sing. He said, (laughs) I just like the way this guy looks. He had the right attitude. He had hate scrawled on his leather jacket walking around Manchester. He was a big fan of Lou Reed and Iggy Pop. That was good enough for Bernard Sumner. You're in. You're our vocalist. As you can hear from that track, when they were known as Warsaw, they fit right in with the... uh, punk sound that was sweeping England at the time. Yeah. All the band members went to see the Sex Pistols. They well, were so Sumner and entranced Hook by that. met at a Sex Pistols show.
3: Yes. And, and that was clearly in the air, that energy. But as uh, John Savage, the English music critic, said, you know, Joy Division were not punk, but they came from there. So you have to understand that, that this was
1: already, when they were just setting out, the beginning of a new wave. Absolutely. I mean, it was one of those things where they moved rapidly from that punk sound into something uniquely their own. And I think, Jim why this band separated itself from the punk pack in England so quickly and is now so influential is because of the sound that they developed over those few months when they became Joy Division. It was a sort of a tongue-in-cheek reference, Joy Division, to uh, German prostitution camps during World War II, so it was kind of a uh, very provocative name to be calling themselves. Well, and they would get a lot of crap through their
3: early career for uh, Nazi imagery, because it was in part of the artwork, too. They've subsequently said we were exactly the opposite of that, and the more people asked why we were doing it, the more we wanted to get in their face and give it to them. It was nonetheless a little bit disturbing. I think there was a little of that in the air at the time. Let's mm-hmm. not forget the Wee movement and, and a lot of the skinhead riots happening in England. There was a flirtation with the right wing. There was also a move toward minimalism. We got a lot of attention on the show a couple of weeks ago playing Young Marble Giants. After the explosion of energy that was punk in the UK, quite a few bands were coming up and stripping everything down. Mm-hmm. We can't be louder and angrier than the Sex Pistols or a bigger sound than The Clash gave us on uh, London Calling – So let's just take everything away and see how much music we can make with how few ingredients.
1: Yeah, and I think this Nazi imagery stuff was really a commentary on what they saw was happening in England. They saw England evolving into a police state, and it really came to the fore when when Margaret Thatcher became the prime minister. So Manchester, a very dreary town, you cannot underestimate the value that growing up in such a sort of a wasteland, an urban wasteland like that in late seventies England, everything was going into decay. The economy was going into toilet. There was this sort of air of fascism sweeping into the the government at the time, at least as perceived by these young men, and and they were bringing it out into that music. What was interesting to me, Jim, musically, this band made some profound leaps. First of all, the role that the bass played in the band. Peter Hook uh, took the bass and brought it into the foreground of the mix. Very aggressive, just sheer brute force on that bass. It was not a background instrument, it was not a rhythm instrument, it was in the foreground and it was in your face when you heard Joy Division. Many of the major melodies and the hooks in Joy Division songs came from Hook. Absolutely, and uh, Sumner on guitar was an interesting guy as well because he was building his own keyboards, building his own effects pedals and creating these series of noises and sound effects that he would sort of push into the song. Sort of this abrasive noise textures that he was bringing to guitar playing. A lot of guitar players now, including Billy Corgan, people like Trent Reznor, describe Bernard Sumner as a closet heavy metal guitarist. He was bringing that sort of aggression and brute force and just noise into what he was doing with the guitar. So it wasn't a traditional lead guitar type of instrument, it was more of a, a noise instrument and uh, that brute force was, was very much apparent when the band would play live. Stephen Morse, very underrated drummer, he played like a drum machine. He was metronomic, but he played with manic, manic intensity on the live shows. And then there was Curtis as the vocalist, this deep, baritone voice. Very few vocalists sounded quite like him. It was interesting. He drew on the sounds of his heroes, Jim Morrison and the Doors. Iggy Pop. Iggy Pop and Frank Sinatra, who mm. became later <laughs> an influence, that sort of deep, manly, baritone voice. But it wasn't histrionic. He wasn't... Like Morrison would get into these histrionic fits up on stage, he was very deadpan. There was no sentimentality in that voice. At the same time, the lyrics were very poetic. Well, and sort of an asexuality. I mean, mm-hmm. Iggy is raw lust. And, right. you
3: know, Frank Sinatra, for that matter, Jim Morrison, you know, this guy you, you didn't really know and is such a big, deep voice coming from such a slight figure. And on top of all that, he was an epileptic. Yeah. And he would often suffer fits, which became worse and worse as his life went on, uh, sometimes having an
1: epileptic fit
3: on stage, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. He was breaking down on stage near the end of his life the key point that we haven't made yet about this band Jim is that Ian Curtis died in in 1980 and that's what ended this band at the age of 23 a lot of his life looked at in retrospect is seen as a prelude to this suicide, where he hung himself in his kitchen on the eve of their first North American tour. We're going to get to that later. But I think it's important to start start looking at these studio records and for what they were and the role that the fifth member of Joy Division, the fifth unofficial member of, of Joy Division, played in their sound, and that was the producer Martin Hannon. I think it's created this distorted lens view from which we view what Joy Division was and why Ian Curtis died. He... Created this studio construct around the band Where the bands, the energy of their live show Was pulled back into this very sparse Almost catacomb-like eeriness on the records The drums took on this sort of tribal sound Uh, It was very solemn, very sparse, very eerie almost like you are walking through a cemetery uh, listening to those records. Well, we did
3: a show last Halloween where we were talking about the uh, the goth underground and that uh, that genre, how it's developed over the last 20, 30 years. A lot of people say Joy Division is the cornerstone goth band. I think that actually limits them, but there is, is that
1: Yep. Mood for sure on the studio albums. They were, they were definitely adopted by the goth movement, especially after Curtis died. It's a total misnomer. But here's an example of what we're talking about. On their second record, Closer, they really, really refined the sound to perfection. Hannett's production, the bands, the, those tribal drums, Curtis's solemn vocals. You can hear it all on this particular track. It's called Atrocity Exhibition from the Closer record. The
2: silence
3: that was Atrocity Exhibition from Joy Division's 1980 album, Closer. We're going to take a break on sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. But when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion about Joy Division, and later we'll review the new albums from Cafe Tacuba and The Red Walls.
2: In arena she kills for a prize Wins a minute to to his life But the sickness is drowned by Christ more. This is the way
3: Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and we're talking about the legacy of one of the most influential bands of the last three decades, Joy Division. The group was comprised of Ian Curtis, Bernard Sumner, Peter Hook, and Stephen Morris, but it's important not to forget the role of producer Martin
1: Hannett. That's right, Jim. Martin Hannett was one of the most influential producers of that era. And as I said before, we can't understand Joy Division without understanding him. He was a lunatic in a lot of ways. He was sort of the Phil Spector of his time, Uh, just a loose cannon. But he had a sound in mind, and in a way the band was sort of appalled and at the same time thrilled by what he was doing, because what he did was separate them from the rest of the punk pack and the post-punk pack at the time in England, but at the same time did a disservice to them because those studio records sounded nothing like their live show, which were incredibly energetic and sort of painted a different picture of the band.
3: And, of course, American audiences didn't get to see the live show exactly. because the band never made it over here. Mm-hmm. They were growing increasingly popular in the U.K. The cult with no name. That was what their followers, the nickname, deserved. They were, they were stereotyped as morose and gloomy mm-hmm. and doomy. I mean, you know, hey, you have songs like Atrocity Exhibition, and you're dealing with heavy uh, yeah. vibes. There was, I gather, though, Greg, a more celebratory element when they performed live.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think that's the thing that I think a lot of people missed out on. First of all, These records came out on Factory Records, a U.K. label. They weren't officially released in the United States at the time they came out in the U.K. Only until later did this material end up surfacing in the U.S., but it did paint a distorted picture. Oh, my God, these guys were so gloomy and so so dark. And there was definitely that foreboding element in those studio records. But the bootlegs were circulating over here at the same time as those studio records, and they painted this picture of this incredibly energetic... There was an anger... In Ian Curtis that did not come across necessarily in those studio recordings, which were a little bit more pulled back. I saw Curtis as sort of being a Samuel Beckett-type figure. You know, the futility... (laughs) You know, every day... Waiting for Godot? Yeah. yeah, I mean, he was waiting for transcendence, and it wasn't happening. But the thing is, you don't stop living it. You keep seeking, keep waiting for that transcendent moment to arrive. So it wasn't this Fatal. I'm going to kill myself kind of thing. It was, yeah, I recognize that life sometimes, often does suck, but I can, I can get through this, and well, I will get through it.
3: That's one element. I mean, he did also try to commit suicide at least once before he succeeded. Well, yeah. uh, He was obviously a troubled individual. But I think in addition to the minimalism that I mentioned earlier, I think the other influence that was coming in, and you just alluded to it, was the dance music. Mm-hmm. In the U.K. and even more in the U.S., punk was initially seen as a reaction to disco. Of course, we now know in retrospect a lot of the punk musicians there was a, a cross-fertilization between the more inventive underground dance music musicians. They were coming from the same area and that began to come out in the wash after the Sex Pistols, after the punk explosion around about 1980, 79 with bands like Joy Division leading the way. You know, it was like we can celebrate and express anger and uh, and political ideas and a, a joy for life and also darker themes. On the dance floor As well as we can In a two and a half minute rock song
1: Absolutely I think a track like Transmission When performed live Perfectly illustrates that point Jim The driving bass line the chorus is basically "We're dancing, 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 dance, dance, yeah. dance yeah, yeah, to the yeah. radio." Yeah. He's talking about driving through the silence, looking for some sign of life out there in the static, and finding it, yeah. and and driving with that. And you can hear Manchester, an industrial, yeah. ugly town. I mean, mm-hmm. that, to
3: me, that bass line sounds <laughs> like a machine, an industry. And of course, when Morris kicks in, you get that as well. The machines are whirling in the background, except they're old, clinky machines that are about to fall apart, <laughs> and nobody really wants whatever widget they're. Making anymore. This is right. the story of the time, and I think that holds up really well. The transmission is probably my all-time favorite Joy Division yeah. track for that reason. Transmission by Joy Division, Greg, one of those great songs that was only on a 12-inch did not make it on a proper Joy Division album. Why was there such a scattershot approach to recording?
1: Why did so many of these great songs only come out on 12-inches and not on albums? Well, it's a great great question, Jim, and it's a it's a really important point about this band. They were purists. They believed singles should be pure. They should stand apart from the record. Mm. So they released a bunch of great songs as singles only that never ended up on the actual records. I mean, it's amazing how much better those records might have been had they put the singles on top of what already was there, but they had a certain amount of integrity in terms of these songs fit together as this album, they create a certain mood, mm. and then they would create these, these songs outside of the, uh, the album context and release them as singles. ¶¶ You know, we talk about Curtis's death and, and that sort of martyrdom that he's been saddled with ever since. I hate that. I hate the fact that this guy's been turned into a martyr. I mean, you shouldn't be celebrating or, or romanticizing the fact that a guy killed himself. And that certainly does not make his lyrics more valid. Well, uh, we, you know,
3: we, we got this again with Kurt Cobain yeah. and Nirvana. Uh, you know, we shouldn't romanticize what happened to him obviously he was troubled, but he was also married and loved the band and worked very hard on it. Why do you think, and does the movie, which I haven't seen yet, uh, shed any light on what happened to Curtis taking his own life right before the first North American tour?
1: Well, Control, the Anton Corbin movie, does address this subject. In fact, it builds to that moment when Curtis hangs himself. I mean, the movie yeah. is Well, and it's based on a, on a book by his wife, right? Yes, touching uh, from a distance. His wife, Deborah, wrote a memoir in the mid-90s that basically dealt with Curtis's life, and it is by far the greatest insight we have into what made Ian Curtis tick. And there was a lot of things going on in his life. He had these epileptic fits going on. Meanwhile, he was married, had a child, but he was having an affair with a Belgian journalist. There was a lot of trouble in his life on that front. He was dealing with depression. There's no doubt about that. And then there was this just general fear of you know, okay, we've made it this far, now what do we do next? So he was dealing with all these issues. The way the movie leaves it is that it was a moment in his life and a bad, just a bad day, and it ended horribly. Right, obviously. which is
3: what many of uh, Cobain's biographers have said. If that gun wasn't there at that moment, it was the wrong moment. You know, I, I think, Greg, people hear Where Did You Sleep Last Night by Nirvana differently because of what happened to Cobain with his suicide. Love will Tear Us Apart is Joy Division's best and most well-known track. I think people hear that differently because of what happened to Curtis. Where did that song come from? Obviously, this is an anguished vocal about a man in a bad situation romantically, but also a new sound and a new way of him singing.
1: Well, it was was an amazing song and a transcendent song in a lot of ways. The songs that the band was writing in the last few weeks of Ian Curtis's life indicate to me that there was still an incredible amount of artistic creativity there. This was not a morose, depressed, We're at the end of our career band. This is a band that was still growing. I mean, they were writing songs like Dead Souls and Atmosphere and These Days and Love Will Tear Us Apart. Bernard Sumner, the man, really played an underrated role in the music making, built these keyboards, created this keyboard sound, created that timeless keyboard riff that sort of bridged the gap between disco and rock. You know, when you talk about a band like LCD Sound System or the Killers nowadays, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of it is drawn from that sound. And this was the bridge, not only to to what we hear today, but to the band that Joy Division would morph into New Order and create the whole of that dance, happy, Madchester scene that uh, that flourished in the late '80s in Manchester. The seeds of that were sown with Level Terrace Apart. I'd say, Jim, this is one of the half dozen more influential songs that have been recorded in rock history. It is truly a transitional moment where rock met disco and ever since There have been songs that have sprung from that seed, so it's it's really a key moment in rock history. The other thing to point out about this, Jim, is that Ian Curtis never sang quite like he did on this particular song. He was stretching his voice. He was starting to listen to Sinatra records. I mean, here was Mm. this diehard punk who was starting to be introduced to other things and realizing you can do more with your voice than just sing on the beat. So you notice how he's stretching the syllables out and sort of accentuating the emotions. This was an emotional guy. I mean, he was reading poetry. He was writing poetry. He was a fan. Of Camus, a little bit of a you know middle class blue collar existentialist, you know, living in Manchester. <laughs> so he wanted ways to sort of accentuate the emotions in the song, and he you know his singing on the song he never sang like he did on "Level Terrace Apart." And those keyboards, as I said, ushered in a new era for a lot of bands. So here it is, "Level Terrace Apart" from Joy Division, one of their last great songs, finally came out in the United States after Ian Curtis died. Mm.
3: Love Will Tear Us Apart, Joy Division's only chart hit and a song written just a month before Ian Curtis committed suicide in 1980. When Curtis was gone, Greg, Joy Division, of course, morphed into New Order, a band that would become much better known than its predecessor. Gillian Garr came on board. They changed the sound. You and I could fight for four hours about the merits of New Order. <laughs> to me, it was all about what a Mute compilation, Mute Records once called the tyranny of the beat. That drum machine drove me crazy. But uh, but we were talking about Joy Division here, and those records endure I will yield to you, uh, Mr. Joy Division expert. What is the one album you would send somebody to if they need, if they have no Joy Division in their life and they need some?
1: It's a really good question because there's no one truly representative record. If you buy Closer or Unknown Pleasures, one of their records, you get a sense of what they were like as an album band, but the singles presented a totally different aspect of the you band. You won't get any of the best songs really because those yeah. were all twelve-inch singles. So I'm going to cop out in a way. I'm going to say. Buy Closer. I think you need that record. You're also on this new reissue. You're going to get a sampling of the band live in concert, uh, which shows a different side of the band. And then I think you need the singles compilation, Substance, which really delves into the other side of the band, some of the more upbeat stuff, some of the stuff that uh, didn't end up on some of those claustrophobic, intensely personal records showing yet a third side of the band. So, substance for, for the singles and closer for one of the great albums of the post-punk era in 1980. Although, really, you would just tell everybody to buy anything with Joy Division on it, right? <laughs> I don't think you can go wrong. <laughs> I don't think you can go wrong with Heart and Soul, which is a great box set, one of the great box sets of all time, four CDs. It gives you pretty much everything Joy Division did. Personally, I can't get enough of it. To learn even more
3: about Joy Division, you can check out the footnotes on our website soundopinions.org or you can listen to archive shows and you can always give us your feedback. We'll be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with reviews of the new albums by what many people say is the best rock band in Mexico, Cafe Tacuba and The Red Walls.
1: Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. You're listening to a little bit of Café Tacuba's new record there, Si No, Yes, No, the sixth studio record from Café Tacuba. That's the centerpiece of the record. In in typically perverse fashion, the Mexico City Quartet uh, released this song, Valvar a Comenzar, as the first single from the record. Uh, If you know the history of rock music in Mexico, it was primarily defined by bands like Mana which were basically imitating english speaking rock bands and putting spanish lyrics over the top so in a, essentially no acknowledgement of their native culture other than the fact that they were singing in spanish cafe tacuba took a different approach started blending the ethnic folk music of Mexico and Latin America with the rock music that they were so influenced by from around the world and became one of the most influential bands in the world. A lot of people from the West sort of look down their noses a little bit and say, well, they're the a Latin American radio head. Well, I think Radioheads, <laughs> the Western world's version of Cafe Tacuba. Tacuba got there first in a lot of ways with this innovation, uh, blending the different styles, introducing electronic elements into rock music, ethnic folk music, norteño music, flamenco music, and combining it with uh, modern rock textures. They got there first. They were the true innovators. They have a really... Wise and mischievous lead singer in Ruben Albaran, who is one of the most distinctive voices in Latin America. A true revolutionary in a lot of ways in in, in terms of the kind of subject matter he's singing about reminds me a lot of what was happening in Brazil in the late 60s in the Tropicalia movement where a new breed of rock bands was forming, bringing aboard Western influences, combining it with native rhythms, and tweaking what was going on in the country, uh, especially in the government. Ruben Albaran has played the same kind of role with Café Tacuba. Oh, he's Uh, fearless.
3: I mean, he was quoted last year as saying that he thought the presidential election in Mexico was rigged. Yeah. And they don't take kindly to that kind of outspokenness.
1: They speak uh, very much in metaphor in their songs. Uh, You you won't hear them blatantly saying overthrow the government, but the people who are listening to these songs know exactly what he's talking about, and he's a true punk rocker. At the same time, this band has brought all sorts of influences on board. They started out as a as a punk band but as I said they've, they've ventured into electronic music and various forms of soul and R&B and then on this new album See No we can hear a distinct whiff of progressive rock yes American <laughs> progressive rock from the 70s on into the early 80s they are bringing that stuff on board this in many ways is maybe their most Anglo sounding record let's hear a little bit from it here's a track called ESK that means and it is that on on Sound Opinions
2: Y es que quisiera saber quién piensas tú que soy yo, ¿qué es lo que esperas de mí para seguirme hasta aquí? No sé si vamos, ya no regresamos, no veo principio ni fin.
3: song called esk from the mexico city band cafe de cuba their new album Cino. gotta love that melodica greg c as you pointed out, could, could be read as C-no, yes, no, or as one word, which means instead of. Mm-hmm. Instead of what, you have to ask. This is the band's first album since 2003. That's a long time. You mentioned that they are looking north and west a lot more, a lot of Anglo influences. I don't think it's American progressive rock as much as it is the vintage English stuff of the mm-hmm. 70s. Sure. There are times here where it sounds like you know Genesis or Yes in all of their glory. I'm pro <laughs> that sound <Yeah. laughs> generally speaking but that's only one ingredient in the mix I mean there's a beautiful breakdown on the song Volver in, in which is pure pet sound But then you have, you know, a Led Zeppelin quote in Estaves. They're all over the map. There's some Motown, there's some who. It's great stuff. It's invigorating. I wish my knowledge of Spanish was better instead of non-existent, so that I could hear what the lyrics are because I know that Albaron is very, very funny and wickedly insightful at times. This is is great stuff. It's recorded a little cleanly. I wish it had a little more grit to it. It's such an intriguing sound. Radiohead never loses the soulfulness, the the, the humanity in the midst of all those machines. Cafe Tacuba is a band that, that was proudly drummerless for a very long mm-hmm. time until recently. Now they have a, a flesh and blood drummer. They're not uh, relying on the machines. I wish I could hear him sweat a little more, if you know what I mean. But that that's that's a minor objection. This is a great great album, Sino. I gotta say it's a buy it on our buy it, burn it, trash it scale.
1: Well, I'm proud to hear you say that, Jim, because because uh, I love this band, and I would agree with you. I think th- it is a little clean. To my mind, their masterpiece was the 1999 double CD, Reves Yasoy, which, uh, to my mind, was the one that, for me, stamped them as true innovators. And and they have been getting some flack from some of their fans that, yeah, you guys are going a little mainstream here. You know, what's going on? What, what Where is the experimentation? We, we mentioned the progressive rock influences, but there's a lot of two-, three-, four-minute pop songs on this record. The melodies are just... On every tune here, they're really bringing them on in a way that I've never heard before from this band. Ruben is not not the only singer. The other three guys are all singing on this record. It's the first time that they shared vocals on the record. I think they're bringing a lot of diversity into the record from that standpoint, a lot of different angles here. This is a band that has never made the same album twice. Just when you think you got these guys figured out, they, they go on to a new thing. Who would have thought that they would have done this kind of... Retro Anglo record and sort of made it their own once again. Wonderful band. If you have not seen Cafe Tacuba Live, they come through the United States quite a bit. They are definitely worth seeing. And I i would say go see them in front of a Hispanic crowd because they go nuts for this band. They love this band. It is one of the most wonderful concert experiences you'll have if you go see Cafe Tacuba Live. And I think this is a buy it record.
3: song called Summer Romance, a wonderful look back at those idyllic puppy love days of the summer from the wise old age of somebody who's now 20 or 21. <laughs> I'm talking about the Red Wolves. An interesting story, Greg. This is their second album, self-titled, just coming out. That's one of the standout tracks. This is a band that came together in the Tony suburbs of Chicago, Deerfield, where a lot of the football players and the Bulls live, right? <laughs> and uh, they, they were a Beatles and Dylan cover band. You just had to love them. You want to pinch their cheeks. They were like 16 years old. They were dressing in matching suits. They were doing these these great, revved up, amphetamized, when I say Beatles, I'm talking about the Beatles on speed in Hamburg, mm-hmm. like the movie Backbeat, and, and taking those Dylan songs and playing them that way like the birds at their most ferocious, but, but, but even beyond that, real garage grit. They got to open for a lot of Chicago bands because they were so darn cute and they were so darn good, and then they became a real Group. They used to call themselves the Pages when they were a cover band, and then they called themselves the Red Walls. And they got signed. Here's the dream story, right? right. Get signed to Capitol Records, the home of the Beatles, right? Mm-hmm. How can they go wrong? They make a really good album in 2005 called De Nova. They tour the world. Oasis loves them. Mm-hmm. They open for stadium shows with Oasis, a bunch of other great bands. They see the, the whole world. They're selling okay, but they're not doing Britney Spears numbers. And boom, Capitol Records is going through a corporate reorganization. The whole record industry is falling apart. They find themselves back at square one at the ripe old age of 20 or 21. But uh, I think lesser bands would have thrown in the towel at that point. Instead, the Red Walls went in and they made uh, what's really their third album. The first one was indie. The second one was their Capitol debut. This one they recorded with Tor Johansson, the Swedish producer known for working with the Cardigans, Franz Ferdinand, OK Go. Let's hear a song from this album on sound opinions this is don't you wanna come out by the red walls where well,
2: don't you wanna come
1: Don't you want to come out from the new Redwalls self titled album, their third album, and first after their Capitol Records uh, deal blew up? Boy, Capitol Records lost as far as I'm concerned. For a long time, Jim, as you mentioned, this band was sort of typecast as a retro band. They certainly love their 60s sounds, the garage rock stuff from the Nuggets era, the Beatles, as you mentioned, a little bit of that box tops, blue eyed soul, all of those elements factored into the music. But what I think is really putting them a cut above on this record is blending those influences with some real sophistication in the songwriting. Some of the strongest songwriting on this record, Jim, is in the ballads near the end of the record, where I think the, the sole singer voices of the, the Barron brothers, Logan and Justin, as well as the guitarist Andrew Langer, are just fantastic. And when- I also love what Tor Johansen does with the band. He sort of ornaments the songs with strings and horns and some drum loops that add to these arrangements in a really constructive and exciting way. The, the sophistication of this record is is just a step above anything they've done before, and they're sort of stepping out of that those retro clothes and really starting to define their own sound. I really see them in a classic Midwestern pop tradition that goes back to bands like the Raspberries and Cheap Trick, mm. really just sort of stepping into those shoes. They are what they are. They're not trying to be anything they're not. This is done with utmost sincerity. This is not winking irony in maybe the way that the hives are approaching yeah. a traditional retro type of rock sounds. They love this stuff, and then they're making their own version of it. I think this is a buy-it record. No, you're absolutely right.
3: It's a buy-it record. I, I think one of the ways they've grown in addition to uh, sharpening the sound and and growing more sophisticated in the songwriting is with the lyrics. You know, I, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was being in close proximity to those Gallagher brothers and seeing, you know, what a disaster, you know, uh, Oasis is and its personal lives and its professional – you know, I, I don't know what it is. But somewhere along the way, these guys – Instead of getting cynical, they've gotten wise and, and mature and are looking back. I mean a song like Summer Romance where you're looking back at this idyllic kind of teenage love affair from you – know, you know, for a while. Mm-hmm. you're barely out of your teens, right? Mm-hmm. But hey, look at Alex Chilton. He was doing that with the box tops when he was 18. So, so I think these guys are following that tradition and they have jumped up a notch. I hope people get to hear The Red Walls now that there is no major label because it deserves to be heard.
1: So that's a double buy-it from Greg and me. What do we have next week, Mr. Cott? Jim, very exciting news. We have Spoon live in the studio, one of the best bands in America today. One of the best bands in the world. Let's just get right to it. Fantastic <laughs> band coming off a terrific Record, Ga 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 Ga. We're going to have a lot of fun saying that title, but then even more fun hearing the songs played from it live in the studio next week. Excellent news.
3: As always, we have some thank yous to say. Sound Opinions is produced by our Ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn, with help from Dave the intern, Dave Mahler. And of course, Greg, our fearless leader, executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia, who uh, I have it on good authority was the model for the guy in the leather pants on the cover of that Wasp album. <laughs>
1: On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say.
0: New messages. Hello, my name is Debbie Olmsted. I'm calling from St. Paul, Minnesota. I was thrilled to hear your review and critique of Raising Sand, Robert Plant and Alison Krauss. I'm a 55-year-old school teacher and guidance counselor. I was listening to our public radio music station on the way to work, 630 a.m., and they played a cut from Raising Sand. I think it was Please Read the Letter. I listened to it. I smiled, and I smiled all the way to work. I was so excited about it. Instead of doing my normal job when I walked in, I went to my computer, found the title, and the CD, found out that it wasn't even released yet, but I pre-ordered it. And it just came to me last week, and I am thrilled to have it. And I really like this CD. It just warms my heart. So thank you for reviewing it. Good job on the show. Love it. Thanks. Bye-bye. Caught out, Ryan, with just a little too much to hide
2: Made me, baby, and everything's going to turn out fine Please read the letter, I nailed it to your door It's crazy how it all turned out, we needed so much more
0: Pam from Evanston, Illinois, I think you guys are wonderful because I am not actually attuned to what's happening in the music scene, and you guys get to make me cool because I get to know what's happening, and I am getting into modernization like the iPod. Um, I'm actually 50, but um, as we know, 50 is the new 40, so all I can say is I'm a fan And uh, I think you guys are wonderful. And I love that NPR took a risk and had you guys. And thank you. Uh,
4: Hey, guys. It's uh, Eric from Minneapolis. Um, I was just calling in to uh, tell you how much I appreciate your show and I really like your uh, constructive criticism and turning me on to new music. The one thing I'm getting a little tired of is the constant hate on Dave Matthews. I'm not the biggest Dave fan either, but it's kind of a joke that's gotten a little old and I'm just not laughing anymore. Um, So let's leave Dave alone and uh, keep the good work. Thanks a lot, guys. Hey, Jim Gregg. Uh, this is John Avery from Downers Grove, Illinois. I want to thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for putting Led Zeppelin three up on a pedestal. That is, I agree, one of the great, insufficiently lauded Led Zeppelin albums. I think uh, when it came out, people regarded as a placeholder, like, okay, Led Zeppelin's too great for us to ignore them just because they didn't have all that good of a third album, but we'll wait and see what the fourth album is like, and of course, everybody latched onto that one, but I think Led Zeppelin 3 was a, a bit too sophisticated for them, a bit too soulful for them, a bit too all sorts of good and deep things for a lot of the public, and they just didn't quite get it, except, of course, for immigrant songs. So, anyway, thank you, thank you, thank you for putting Led Zeppelin 3 up on a pedestal and uh, genuflecting in its general direction. I am there with you. Thank you very much.
0: No more messages.
4: To give us your
3: opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.